This is Dr. Baliga here. Today's podcast is on hyperkalemia. Hyperkalemia is defined as a serum potassium concentration that is greater than 5 milli equivalents per liter. The extracellular potassium concentration is tightly maintained between 3.5 to 5 milli equivalents per liter because normal potassium levels are essential for generation of normal action potentials in the cardiac and skeletal muscles and neurons. Cellular buffering of potassium provides the first immediate defense against a major fluctuation in extracellular potassium concentration. The cells contain 98% of the total body potassium, that is 3,000 to 4,000 milliequivalents, and can sequester extracellular potassium in hyperkalemia. The kidney provides a long-term potassium homeostasis by adjusting urinary potassium excretion according to potassium intake and the body's potassium status. The urinary potassium excretion, which rises in response to increased potassium intake and hyperkalemia is so efficient that even a tenfold increase in the daily potassium intake from 40 to 400 milliequivalents does not produce persistent hyperkalemia. A corollary is that persistent hyperkalemia always indicates a defect in urinary potassium excretion. Prevalence of hyperkalemia is low in the general population, about 2-3%, to but the prevalence is high in patients with chronic kidney disease and it is as high as 50%. Hyperkalemia is associated with increased mortality in patients with normal kidney function and in patients with chronic kidney disease. Complications include sudden death from cardiac arrhythmias, muscle weakness and impaired renal acidification. Values greater than 6 milliequivalents per liter should be addressed immediately and in some cases intravenous calcium chloride and insulin administered with glucose may be required. A potassium value of less than 6 milliequivalents per liter is also of concern when the rate of increase in potassium level is rapid, that is within 24 hours. Potassium is typically measured with an ion selective electrode that converts the activity of dissolved potassium in solution into an electric potential measured by a voltmeter. This test is usually obtained as a part of an electrolyte panel. Samples are collected in tubes containing a clot activator for serum or heparin for plasma measurement of potassium concentration. Serum potassium concentration is typically 0.1 to 0.4 milliequivalents per liter greater than plasma due to release of potassium by platelets during the clotting process. A disturbance in the transcellular shift of potassium can also cause hyperkalemia, which is almost always transient if the renal potassium handling is intact. Besides the extracellular potassium concentration itself, the sodium potassium ATPase pump is a major regulator of the transcellular potassium shift. Inhibition of the pump by digoxin and beta-2 adrenergic receptor blockade causes hyperkalemia by impairing cellular potassium intake. Additionally, Hyperosmolality and a change in the extracellular pH influence the transcellular potassium shift 
leading to a disturbance in the extracellular potassium concentration. The renal handling of potassium is important in maintaining potassium homeostasis. Renal handling of potassium occurs in three stages in distinct anatomic sites along the nephron. The first stage is the filtration of plasma potassium at the glomerulus. The second stage involves net reabsorption of greater than 90% of the filtered potassium in the proximal tubule, 60 to 80%, and the loop of Henle, about 25%. As a result, fluid leaving the loop of Henle achieves a low luminal potassium concentration. The third and last stage of renal potassium handling takes place in the distal nephron, that is the connecting segment and the collecting duct, where net potassium reabsorption or net potassium secretion can occur depending on potassium intake and body's potassium status. On a typical daily intake of 100 milli equivalents of potassium, the distal nephron achieves net potassium secretion, which is responsible for the majority of the potassium appearing in the urine. A four-fold increase in daily potassium intake to 400 milli equivalents induces a similar increase in the distal potassium secretion. The potassium secretion in the distal nephron requires A. Sufficient potassium permeability across the principal cell and B. The adequate driving force for potassium secretion. The sodium-potassium ATPase in the basolateral membrane takes up potassium from the extracellular fluid which the open potassium channel on the luminal membrane secretes into the collecting duct lumen. Thus the normal activity of the sodium potassium ATPase and the adequate number of open potassium channels are necessary to establish sufficient potassium permeability across the principal cell. By stimulating the sodium potassium ATPase and increasing the number of open potassium channels, aldosterone enhances potassium permeability and induces Caliuresis. The driving force for potassium secretion stems from the low luminal potassium concentration and lumen negativity. The fluid entering the distal nephron is low in potassium because of potassium reabsorption in the proximal tubule and loop of Henle. An adequate distal tubular flow then maintains the low luminal potassium concentration by washing away secreted potassium and preventing its buildup. The adequate distal tubular flow also helps generate and maintain lumen negativity by providing an adequate supply of intraluminal sodium. The entry of sodium into the principal cell via the amyloride sensitive epithelial sodium channels with a slight delay in the reabsorption of an anion such as chloride makes the lumen negative relative to the cell. By increasing the number of open sodium channels aldosterone stimulates sodium reabsorption and contributes to the generation of lumen negativity. Finally, the reabsorbed sodium exits the cell across the basolateral membrane by the sodium potassium ATPase in exchange for extracellular potassium. The foregoing discussion highlights the central role that aldosterone and adequate distal tubular sodium delivery and urine flow play in renal potassium excretion. Activation of the basolateral sodium ATPase and the luminal potassium channels, that's ROMK, by aldosterone establishes the potassium permeability across the principal cell 
while aldosterone mediated sodium reabsorption by the principal cell in the setting of adequate sodium delivery and urine flow generates and maintains favorable electrochemical gradient for potassium secretion. Most of the causes of excessive or reduced urinary potassium excretion can be traced back to high or low aldosterone level or distal tubular flow or both. Hypoaldosteronism and low distal tubular flow cause hyperkalemia. In evaluating hyperkalemia, pseudohyperkalemia or fictitious hyperkalemia should be first excluded, particularly in patients without risk factors. Fictitious hyperkalemia can occur with thrombocytosis when the platelet count is greater than 600,000 per microliter or when there is white blood cell neoplasia that is when the white cell count is greater than 200,000 per microliter and mechanical factors including prolonged application of a tourniquet and fist clenching during the phlebotomy procedure and familial pseudohyperkalemia. Excessive intake of potassium-rich foods is an infrequent cause of hyperkalemia but can worsen the severity of hyperkalemia when renal excretion is impaired. In my experience, once we had a patient with hyperkalemia who was eating excessive quantities of Ensure protein drink and after much investigation we found that the hyperkalemia is due to the intake of Ensure once the intake of Ensure was decreased, his potassium levels returned to the normal range. A shift of potassium from intracellular to extracellular space due to factors such as insulin deficiency seen in diabetic ketoacidosis or, or hyperosmolar non-ketotic diabetes with non-selective beta blockers in inorganic metabolic acidosis and in hyperosmolar states such as diabetic ketoacidosis, mannitol, in tumor lysis syndrome, and in digoxin toxicity. All these can cause cellular shifts of potassium from the intracellular to the extracellular space. A normal gap metabolic acidosis, but not high anion gap metabolic acidosis, can also result potassium shift from the intracellular to the extracellular space. Rhabdomyolysis, tumor lysis, and hemolysis are other potential causes of significant hyperkalemia in the inpatient setting. Sustained hyperkalemia is generally due to decreased renal excretion, which is caused by A, a primary decrease in sodium delivery to the distal nephron, example in patients with decompensated heart failure, diarrhea, and pseudohypoaldosteronism type 2. B, a primary decrease in mineral corticoid level activity. In first degree hypoaldosteronism, aldosterone levels are low but plasma renin activity is high. And examples include with ACE inhibitors, ARBs, heparin, first degree adrenal insufficiency, and aldosterone synthase deficiency. Second degree or hyperdynamic hypoaldosteronism is where aldosterone levels are low and plasma renin levels are low and seen in diabetics, chronic interstitial nephritis, 
with the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, with the use of beta blockers, with the use of calcineurin inhibitors, and in acute glomerular nephritis. Another cause of decreased urinary potassium excretion is pseudo-hypoaldosteronism, where the serum aldosterone levels are high and plasma renin activity is high. It's seen with the use of mineral corticoid receptor blockers, such as spondylactone, epilirinone, and pseudo-hypoaldosteronism type 1, which is autosomal dominant. It can also be seen in the inactivation of the epithelial sodium channel with drugs such as emilorite, trimetoprim, and trimethoprim, pentamidine, and pseudohypoaldosteronism type 1 autosomal recessive. Other causes of hyperkalemia include the use of succinylcholine and hyperkalemic periodic paralysis. Medications which inhibit the sodium potassium ATPase, such as somatostatin, non-selective beta blockers, and digoxin to toxicity can result in hyperkalemia. To discuss the various causes of hyperkalemia in detail, we'll be looking at three main mechanisms. A, disturbances in internal potassium distribution. B, increased intake. C, impaired renal potassium excretion. And under this category includes A, hypoaldosteronism. B, pseudohypoaldosteronism. C, diminished distal flow, and D, diminished GFR. Disturbances in internal potassium distribution. Reduced cellular uptake of extracellular potassium or excessive cellular release of intracellular potassium can lead to hyperkalemia without an increase in total body potassium. Inhibition of the sodium-potassium ATPase by a non-selective beta blocker or digoxin can cause hyperkalemia by impairing the cellular potassium uptake. In metabolic acidosis from non-organic acids, the cellular uptake of extracellular hydrogen ion causes a release of intracellular potassium in order to maintain electroneutrality. Diabetic ketoacidosis and hyperglycemic hyperosmolar non-ketotic coma a reduced cellular uptake of extracellular potassium from insulin deficiency and a release of intracellular potassium from hyperosmolality both contribute to hyperkalemia. Rhabdomyolysis and tumor lysis syndrome cause hyperkalemia as the cells break down and release their intracellular potassium. Hyperkalemic periodic paralysis is an autosomal dominant condition characterized by recurrent attacks of muscular weakness and paralysis. The attacks are typically precipitated by cold, potassium load, and rest after exercise. The affected gene encodes a skeletal muscle sodium channel, which closes much more slowly than the wild type. The delayed closure leads to prolonged depolarization and promotes the efflux of potassium. Increased intake. As discussed earlier, normally an increase in potassium intake alone does not cause hyperkalemia because the kidneys are able to increase the urinary potassium excretion. A high potassium intake is, however, likely to unmask or worsen hyperkalemia if there is a reduced urinary potassium excretion. Impaired renal potassium excretion 
hypoaldosteronism because aldosterone is synthesized in the zona glomerulosa of the adrenal glands. Any process that destroys the adrenal glands can cause hypoaldosteronism. These examples include primary adrenal insufficiency, adrenal metastasis, and HIV. Several congenital forms of hypoaldosteronism have been described in which a defect in one of the enzymes in the aldosterone synthetic pathway causes aldosterone deficiency. ACE inhibitors, angiotensin II receptor blockers, heparin, cyclosporin, and are some of the drugs that, that can decrease aldosterone synthesis and result in hyperkalemia. Pseudohypoaldosteronism. A normal or even higher than normal level of aldosterone, however, may be associated with hyperkalemia if the end organ, namely the principal cell, does not permit full expression of the normal caliuretic effect of the aldosteronism. Pseudohypoaldosteronism refers to a state in which the hyperkalemia develops as a result of aldosterone resistance in the principal cell. Potassium-sparing diuretics act by antagonizing the action of aldosterone. Spinolactone and epirinone do so directly by preventing aldosterone from binding to its mineral corticoid receptor in the principal cell. That's why it's known as the mineral corticoid receptor antagonist. Trimetrine, amylorite, pentamidine, and trimethoprim bind to and close epithelial sodium channel. In doing so, they block one of the important downstream effects of aldosterone, which is to open the epithelial sodium channel. Genetic counterparts to these two groups of potassium-sparing diuretics have been described. These include autosomal dominant type 1, primary hypoaldosteronism, a mutation in the mineral corticoid receptor gene, which prevents the binding of aldosterone to its mutant receptor in much the same way that spinolactone works. In autosomal recessive type 1 primary hypoaldosteronism, the mutation inactivates the epithelial sodium channel, the site of inhibitory action of amyloride. Diminished distal flow is another important cause of hyperkalemia. A diminished distal tubular flow is observed in a state of depleted effective circulating volume wherein reduced glomerular filtration rate and increased proximal reabsorption of sodium and water lower distal tubular flow rate. Despite a high level of aldosterone induced by the depleted effective circulating volume, potassium secretion falls because of the loss of the electrochemical gradient for its secretion. The induction of hypoaldosteronism or pseudohypoaldosteronism by concurrent use of ACE inhibitors or potassium-sparing diuretics, as that may occur in congestive heart failure and cirrhosis, can lead to hyperkalemia in the background of low distal tubular flow state. Diminished glomerular filtration rate is another important cause of hyperkalemia. Loss of glomerular filtration rate alone typically does not produce hyperkalemia until the glomerular filtration rate falls to 10 to 20 mils per minute. This is because the remnant nephrons can augment the potassium excretion. This renal adaptation is mediated in part by an increased secretion of aldosterone and an enhanced 
sodium potassium ATPase activity in the principal cells. Therefore, when hyperkalemia develops in pre end stage renal disease patients, the other causes of hyperkalemia, such as excessive potassium intake, imbalance in the internal potassium distribution, hypoaldosteronism, and decreased distal tubular flow must be at work. Indeed, hyperkalemia in an aneuric end-stage renal disease patient can occur without any one of the secondary insults since the complete abrogation of the renal potassium excretion is destined to produce hyperkalemia unless potassium is removed by dialysis. Diagnosis of hyperkalemia. The cause or causes of hyperkalemia are often evident from a complete history including a detailed review of medications and routine blood tests such as the basic metabolic panel. Pseudohyperkalemia should be suspected when the blood sample is hemolyzed or if the measurement of potassium was performed on the serum with significant leukocytosis that's a white blood cell count greater than 100,000 per microliter or thrombocytosis when the platelet count is greater than 1 million per microliter. In the setting of significant leukocytosis or thrombocytosis, the measurement must be repeated in plasma. Hyperglycemia, use of non-selective beta blocker, succinylcholine or digitalized toxicity should alert to an imbalance in the internal potassium distribution. In complex cases, a structured diagnostic approach should be used. Step one includes rule out pseudohypokalemia from hemolysis, example white blood cell count or platelet count or fist clenching during phlebotomy. Step 2, check the transtubular potassium gradient to determine the effect of aldosterone on the distal nephron. When the transtubular potassium gradient is greater than 6, think of an adequate aldosterone effect. When the transtubular potassium gradient is less than 6, consider inadequate aldosterone effect. When the transtubular potassium gradient is greater than 6, that is when the aldosterone effect is adequate, check the urinary sodium to determine the adequacy of the distal sodium delivery. When the urinary sodium is less than 20, suggest decreased distal tubular flow, such as in depleted effective circulating volume, as in congestive heart failure, or in pseudohypoaldosteronism type 2. When the urinary sodium is greater than 40, then think of diminished GFR like in chronic kidney disease or transcellular shifts such as in hyperglycemia, hyperosmolality, digoxin, non-selective beta blocker, succinylcholine, inorganic acidosis, tumor lysis syndrome, and hyperkalemic periodic paralysis. When the transtubular potassium gradient is less than 6, consider inadequate aldosterone effect. Then at that stage, check plasma aldosterone to differentiate between hypoaldosteronism and pseudohypoaldosteronism. When the plasma aldosterone level is low, it's hypoaldosteronism. And at that stage, check plasma inactivity to differentiate between primary and secondary hypoaldosteronism. When the plasma inactivity is high, Think of primary hypoaldosteronism such as with ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, heparin, 
primary adrenal insufficiency and aldosterone synthase deficiency. When the plasma renin activity is low, think of secondary hypoaldosteronism, that is hyporeninemic hypoaldosteronism seen in diabetes mellitus, chronic interstitial nephritis, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, calcineurin inhibitors, beta blockers, acute glomerulonephritis. When the plasma aldosterone levels are high, think of pseudo-hypoaldosteronism like with spironolactone, epiletinone, pseudo-hypoaldosteronism type 1, autosomal dominant and autosomal recessive with drugs such as amyloride, trimetrine, trimethoprim and pentamidine. A quick checklist of risk factors for hyperkalemia include A. Chronic kidney disease where hyperkalemia risk is inversely related to GFR and increase substantially below an estimated GFR of less than 30 mils per minute for 1.73 meters squared body surface area, two diabetics, three decompensated congestive heart failure, four medications including inhibition of renin release from the juxtaglomerular cells such as beta blockers, calcineurin inhibitors including cyclosporin, tacrolimus, with non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, but not low-dose aspirin, with medications that inhibit aldosterone release from the adrenal gland, such as heparin and ketoconazole, mineralocorticoid receptor blockers, such as spironolactone and epiletinone, blockade of the epithelial sodium channel in the renal collecting duct, including amyloride, trimetrine, and trimethoprim, and finally, consider potassium supplements such as salt substitutes, certain herbs, and potassium-enriched foods in the setting of impaired renal excretion. Remember, in diabetics, a spectrum of abnormalities in the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system has been described to cause uh, hyperkalemia, and these include hyporeninemic hypoaldosteronism and normal renin release, but a diminished capacity to release aldosteronism. Hypoaldosteronism combined with dysfunction of the collecting duct due to diabetic nephropathy and treatment with ACE inhibitors or ARBs make the patients particularly at high risk for hyperkalemia. Clinical manifestations of hyperkalemia. Hyperkalemia presents with painless muscle weakness and cardiac conduction abnormalities. The first change on EKG is a narrow symmetric T waves with a shortened QTC interval, which are distinguished from tall T waves of ischemia, which are associated with normal or prolonged QTC interval. Worsening hyperkalemia produces PR interval prolongation, QRS widening, loss of the P wave, and a sine wave pattern. Unfortunately, there is a poor correlation between serum potassium levels and EKG changes. However, in most patients with serum potassium levels below 6 milliequivalents per liter, the changes are not uh, apparent. Therapy of hyperkalemia. Severe or symptomatic hyperkalemia requires urgent interventions to prevent and to treat potentially life-threatening muscular and cardiac sequelae of hyperkalemia. The therapy involves a three-pronged approach. A. 
counteracting the detrimental effects of hyperkalemia on cardiac membranes with intravenous calcium gluconate, B, sequestering extracellular potassium into cells with insulin, dextrose combination, and at times, beta-2 agonists and sodium bicarbonate. And three, eliminating excess potassium from the body. Until therapy is complete, patients may require repeated doses of these treatments as the duration of action of calcium gluconate is approximately 30 minutes and that of insulin dextrose infusion is about 90 minutes, that is, it's relatively short. The use of potassium binding resin such as cakesalate requires an intact colon for its use, is a risk of colonic necrosis due to cakesalate crystal deposition in the colonic mucosa and therefore its use should be restricted to patients with significant hyperkalemia that is serum potassium above 6 milliequivalents per liter. In patients without renal function such as end-stage renal disease or acute renal failure, dialysis is necessary to correct hyperkalemia. In a recent editorial in JAMA Internal Medicine, August 2019 issue, Dr. Monica Parks, MD, and Dr. Deborah Grady, MD, MPH, both from the UCSF VA Center, and Dr. Grady is a deputy editor of JAMA, discussed the role of sodium polystyrene sulfonate for hyperkalemia. Sodium polystyrene sulfonate sold under the brand names of KXLate, Kyonex, and SPS, is widely used for the therapy of hyperkalemia. It's a synthetic cation-bound resin that exchanges sodium cations for potassium in the GI lumen, resulting in increased fecal potassium excretion that in turn leads to decreased serum potassium level. This drug was first introduced for the therapy of hyperkalemia in two small uncontrolled K-series in the early 1950s when the US FDA approved it for short-term therapy of hyperkalemia in 1958. Despite its long history of use, there have been no robust randomized clinical trials documenting the efficacy and safety of sodium polystyrene sulfonate for long-term management of hyperkalemia. Uncontrolled observation studies and one small randomized clinical trial demonstrated small decreases in serum potassium levels of questionable clinical significance in patients with chronic kidney disease. According to the authors of this editorial, no study has addressed the association of sodium polystyrene sulfonate with clinical outcomes potentially related to hyperkalemia such as cardiac arrhythmias. In addition to very weak evidence for positive outcomes, there is mounting evidence of harm caused by this drug. As discussed earlier, intestinal necrosis associated with sorbitol polystyrene sulfonate Sorbitol, the typical method of administration, were reported as early as the 1980s. In 2009, the FDA warned of the risk of intestinal necrosis with the administration of sodium polystyrene sulfonate in sorbitol and recommended avoiding the combination of these medications in post-operative patients and those with intestinal obstruction or chronic bowel disease, including constipation. The mechanism of action was thought to be related to a hyperosmotic load from sorbitol leading to 
P-dependent sodium potassium pump dysfunction with alteration of cellular membrane transport systems and reduced intestinal blood flow. Comorbidities such as intestinal obstruction, diabetes or vascular disease were also thought to contribute. Intestinal necrosis was described only as a complication of the combination of sodium polystyrene sulfonate and sorbitol. In particular, 70% sorbitol and sodium polystyrene sulfonate preparations without sorbitol were reported to be safe. More recently, however, case reports of intestinal necrosis following sodium polystyrene sulfonate administration without sorbitol have also emerged. A newer cation exchange resin, fatty rumor, has recently been approved for lowering serum potassium levels in patients with chronic hyperkalemia. Fatty rumor is a polymer-based agent that binds potassium in the colon in exchange for calcium. The most definitive clinical trial with this agent was the OPAL-HK trial, which examined 237 patients with stage 3 or stage 4 chronic kidney disease with baseline serum potassium levels between 5 and 6.5 millimoles per liter and demonstrated a small drop in serum potassium levels with patiromore compared to placebo. Constipation occurred in 11% of the patients and hypomagnesemia developed in 3% but there were no serious adverse GI events. Based on this data, in 2015, FDA approved more for treatment of chronic hyperkalemia, but warned against its use in patients with urgent or emergent hyperkalemia. A randomized clinical trial comparing calcium binders with sodium polystyrene sulfonate in 97 patients with chronic kidney disease and hyperkalemia found no significant difference in outcome between these drugs. Petrimor, or trade name Veltasa, is not available as a generic drug and costs about $1,000 per month compared with about $10 a month for sodium polystyrene sulfate. Given the mounting evidence of risks of cation exchange resins, do the risks outweigh the benefits they offer? In, uh, in the August issue of JAMA Internal Medicine, one study used population-based data from Ontario, Canada to examine the association of therapy of older adult patients with sodium polystyrene sulfate and hospitalization or RED visits for adverse GI events including intestinal ischemia, thrombosis, ulceration, perforation and abdominal surgery. Compared with non-users, patients prescribed sodium polystyrene sulfate had a two-fold higher risk of adverse GI events within 30 days of the initial prescription. The absolute increase in the risk of these events was small, about 1 in 1,000, but these events could be life-threatening. Given the previous reports of GI harm associated with sodium polystyrene sulfonate, this study strengthens evidence of harm by examining the incidence of this outcome in a large population. Furthermore, this study allowed the authors to examine adverse GI events across subgroups with risk factors for this complication. However, the study has limitations because the patients included in the analysis had a mean age of 78 years and many comorbidities with 20% residing in long-term care facilities. 
the risk of adverse GI events may be lower in younger, healthier people. Also, the authors had data only on drug prescription, but not on actual doses, medication regimen adherence, or pathologic characteristics, and so it's difficult to establish a dose response or a true causal relationship between the drug and outcome. So what should the clinician do is a question which the editorialists pose and they answer the question given the evidence that sodium polystyrene sulfate should not be used to reduce serum potassium levels. They recommend using other approaches to treat elevated serum potassium levels including dietary restriction of potassium, potassium wasting diuretics and lower doses or discontinuation medications that increase serum potassium. Given the lack of evidence of GI adverse events related to pteromore, it may be tempting to choose this drug rather than sodium polystyrene sulfate. However, studies of pteromore have been small and short term, 3 days to 8 weeks, and the drug has not been used widely in practice. They said it's possible that this drug may cause other significant adverse events. In their summary of the editorial, they summarize evidence for positive outcomes with cation exchange resins is weak and accumulating evidence suggests that sodium polystyrene sulfate increases risk for serious GI adverse events such as intestinal necrosis. Despite this, sodium polystyrene sulfonate is still commonly used to treat moderate hyperkalemia when no treatment or alternative treatments should be preferred. Newer cation exchange agents are entering clinical use, but real-world data describing their success in reducing hyperkalemia are limited, and there's very little data regarding long-term safety. Multiple choice question. A 28-year-old woman with end-stage renal disease due to lupus nephritis presents to the emergency department with weakness for 24 hours. She has a history of non-compliance and her last hemodialysis was six days earlier. On exam, she appears ill. Blood pressure is 88 by 50, heart rate 58, afebrile, oxygen saturation 90% on 2 liters nasal cannula. Her lungs are bipasillar rods and she has bilateral leg edema. Laboratory test, serum sodium 129 milliequivalents per liter, serum potassium 7.4 milliequivalents per liter, Serum chloride, 100 milliequivalents per liter. Serum bicarbonate, 19 milliequivalents per liter. Serum glucose, 68 milligrams per deciliter. Her EKG shows tall uh, peak tended T waves. The nephrology service informs you that hemodialysis can commence in about 10 minutes. What is the most appropriate therapy step at this time? A. Give IV calcium gluconate plus IV insulin with 50% dextrose. B. Give IV calcium gluconate plus IV sodium bicarbonate. C. Give IV calcium gluconate plus IV 50% dextrose push without insulin. D. Give IV insulin with 50% dextrose plus high dose inhaled albuterol. And E. No specific therapy as dialysis will be started shortly. The answer is 8A. This woman presents with symptomatic hyperkalemia with cardiovascular instability, EKG shows changes consistent with 
cardiotoxicity of hyperkalemia, including peak T waves. Hyperkalemia with this degree of cardiotoxicity requires immediate therapy with calcium gluconate to stabilize cardiac membranes. In addition, temporizing measures to lower serum potassium are also necessary until hemodialysis is initiated. Insulin is the most effective of these strategies, followed by inhaled beta agonists, because insulin drives both potassium and glucose into the cells. D50, that's dextrose 50, should be given to prevent hypoglycemia. Bicarbonate is not effective in reducing serum potassium in end-stage renal disease. Just waiting for hemodialysis, no matter how quickly it can be initiated, is not an acceptable alternative for life-threatening hyperkalemia.